putting that together. It's always great to see our kids and, and how much uh, Bible knowledge that they have. It's always wonderful for that. Yes, amen. Uh, grab your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Isaiah. We will start in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, and then we'll stop off in Luke for a moment, and then we'll get back to Isaiah chapter 9. I want to say to you, welcome, and we are glad that you're here. Before we go any further, just kind of to make everyone comfortable, if you'll turn to someone around you and you'll say Merry Christmas to them, if you don't mind, you feel free to shake their hand and say it's good to see them today. Now that we're comfortable, yes, we can, we can move on. Today is the first day of Advent, and so we are excited about being able to share this first day of Advent with you, and hopefully to walk this through with you also over the next 24 days together. And so today we are talking about the Already But Not Yet, which is the title for our sermon series throughout the month of Advent. And so we are excited about that, again, this being the first day of Advent. Now, the thing about Advent is this. We use that term a lot around here. And it, in reality, the Advent piece of this time of year, it's a little more difficult to wrap your mind around than that of Christmas piece and the Christmas piece. And, and before you judge me or anything about that, I'm not anti-Christmas or anything because I'm very, very much into all of the celebration tradition, all those kinds of things. Absolutely. But what I'm talking about is the season, the lights, the presence, the trees, the shadows, and not the substance. And so what we want to do over the next few weeks together is to not somehow uh, devalue the shadow in your life. We, we want you to celebrate, and that's important, and you're going to do that whether we want you to do that or not. We understand that. But yet we want to very much bring our focus back to the substance behind the shadow of all of the festivities within our lives during the Advent season. Because the thing is this, that you can't get your arms around a shadow, but you can certainly get your arms around the substance of something, and that's what we want to focus on. The beauty of the shadow is it is a reflection of something bigger and something greater. So there's nothing wrong with all the celebration and all the things, and the trees and the gifts and those things that we do, as long as we keep in mind that it is a shadow of truly the substance of what Advent is all about. Because the substance belongs to Christ. It belongs to Christ. It's the shadow of Christmas is good, yet absolutely, but the hope is not in the shadow, but the hope is in the substance of this time of year of Advent. Thus, thus, the idea of Advent is somewhat more complex for us to wrap our mind around than Christmas. Yes, it is. It's the challenge to get our mind and our heart around that of what this is all about. Now, I'm not naive in this teaching to, to really think that for the next uh, 40 minutes or so together that somehow it's going to override all of this holiday, this holiday sensory overload that you're going to be on for the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm not, that's not what this is about. It's not. No. Because I realized that holiday decor, Christmas decor, has been in the stores long before Thanksgiving. It always kind of, you know, this, this surprises me that some of you, like myself, you've been listening to Christmas music since when? Since September or October. And so, you, you know, you're, you're really enjoying the season. So it's not, I'm not naive to think that what we're going to talk about over the next few moments is going to somehow override all of that. But my prayer is this, through this process and through the next few weeks together, that we begin to focus on that of the substance that casts the shadow of celebration in our lives and in our families 
over the next few weeks together. Listen, I love it. I love this time of year, and I make no, you know, make no bones about that. I, I really do. I even enjoy, I have grown to enjoy Hallmark movies, okay? As a man, I have, yeah? I know, I know. And some of you say, Mark, please surrender your man car before you leave, okay? And that's sexist. I realize that and stereotypical, but yet I'm just going to put it out there. And I've learned it. I first watched my, that first movie with my wife, because one, that I thought it would score points with her, okay? Now, let's just be real honest about it, right? Yes, I did. And, and so, as I've told you before, though, all points evaporate at midnight. They don't carry over, so understand that as a man. And so I did, but yet I absolutely have learned to enjoy them. So I love this time of year and the time that we spend together. But yet, my prayer and our prayer as a church is that that our, our focus and our hearts and our minds are truly turned toward the substance behind the, the shadow. And that is one, the incarnation, which we're going to talk about for a few moments this morning. It's God in the flesh. And when we use the term the already but not yet, a theological term, that what that means is that the already is that Christ has come, that God looked at the brokenness of the world. And in Genesis chapter 3, he makes a promise to us and he sends his son wrapped in flesh. And that is the already. But the not yet part is that is the second advent, that at some point in history, in our history, that Christ will return and he will make all things right and he will correct all injustices in this world. So we truly live in the light of the already but not yet. So we're committed to your joy during the Advent season to focus on the things that won't disappoint you because there are those expectations of the holidays that we have that many times leaves us very flat and leaves us very empty at times. The already but not yet, oh, that's an interesting term, isn't it? Because we're okay with the already part. Absolutely, we are. But that not yet part we struggle with. Because why? Because it refers to that concept of waiting. And in this crowd in 2018, here uh, on the brink of all kinds of technology and and this flood of technology in our life, we don't want to wait for anything. And the idea of waiting somewhat frustrates us. So there is an excitement in this term of the already, but yet when we get to the not yet, there is somewhat of a, a little bit of frustration. It does create that within our lives. So here's my thought. Here's my thought. And, and, and I kind of went, went through this in my brain this week, you know, that in, in 15 days, in 15 days, that I will be 60 years old, young, okay? I almost said old, didn't I? 60 years young. And to me, that's very young. It actually is because the older you get, the younger it feels. It does. And so I thought about my life and, and I thought about, you know, how technology has changed and, and, and over the years, and it has to do with waiting. And I remember things about like going to the movies, you know, uh, that in, in back in the day when you wanted to go to the movies and you want to find out what was playing at the theater, what did you do? What did you do? You went to the newspaper, you found somewhere in the classifieds, you found the list of all the movies that were shown. If you didn't have a paper, then you got on the phone and you called the theater and they had a number for the business of the theater and then they had a number for the movie phone. And you called and it would list all the movies. I always had this guy with this really interesting voice that would always give you the movie and the times and all those kinds of things. And when you did that, if you called and somebody else was calling, then what did you get? You got a what? A busy signal. Yes. How many of you, maybe some of you have never heard a busy signal. I don't know, you know. 
Uh, we don't get those anymore. I don't think we do. And so I, I went online today and I thought, you know, what I should do is I should try to find a busy signal. And I found one and I text it to myself. Isn't that funny? I text myself a busy signal. Okay. okay. Interesting, isn't it? It's an odd thing, right? A busy signal. What? I have to call back. Yes. And sometimes if you had a rotary phone, then there was no redial button. So you had to dial it again. Watch the dial come back. Dial it again. Say, Mark, you are old. Okay. Understand that, right? No. So we, we don't like in our, techno- in our age of technology, we don't like to wait. We really don't. Back in my day, you know, when you, uh, when you wanted to research something, what did you do? You went and got an encyclopedia. Now if I want to research something, I go to my phone, I Google that, and, and at my fingertips, are more, it's more information. In fact, for this room collectively, it's more information than we will probably use collectively our entire lives if you were to combine all of them. There is that, th- listen, I thought about music. Man, the other day, I was wanting to listen to some Doobie Brothers, and don't judge me, okay? All right? Don't judge me, but I just felt in the Doobie Brother mood. And so I'm in my car. I pull over on the side of the road to be safe. I did. And I simply go to iTunes, and I download the latest album. And then I simply, I, I, it connects to my radio via uh, Bluetooth. And all of a sudden, I'm jamming to simply the Doobie Brothers, and Jesus is all right with me, you know? You know? And, and that's not a spiritual statement, but Jesus is just all right with me. It's a song, okay? Understand that. Yes. And technology is, I didn't have to wait, I didn't have to go stand in line, I didn't have to go to the store, I didn't have to do, and in light of all of that, waiting sometimes is difficult. Yeah. We get frustrated with Wi-Fi. If it's not fast enough, it's not, if it's not instantaneous, if, if my page doesn't load in three seconds, then all of a sudden it is a tragedy. And anything worse than slow Wi-Fi is absolutely no Wi-Fi at all. And that is a tragedy in our life. It absolutely is. Yes. And so what the already but not yet does, it brings, yes, it brings hope in our lives. It does. But it also brings a sense of frustration and of waiting. And what I love about God and his character and his nature, as we've talked about so many times through the book of James together, is that God could have just given us the not yet. He could have said, hey, here is the thing. I'm going to come and I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to die on the cross and I'm going to rise on the third day and I'm going to sin, but I'm going to leave you by yourself, okay? And so you got to work out your own issues and you got to work out the own situations in your life. But yet someday I will return. It's called deism. Someday I'll return and then I'll make everything right. But what I love it is this, that in his character and his nature, that he gives us the already. He gives us the already. It's his character that he saw God look down in our lives. He sees this colossal debacle of our lives in the book of Genesis. And he says in Genesis chapter 3 that he gives us this promise that one day that he will send someone in the flesh, God the Father says, and that they will fix everything in this world and they will make everything right. And that is Advent, that he sends his son, the already He sends his son into this world for you and I. The not yet peace, oh, that is the part that says that in some day, one day in our future, that Christ will return 
and he will make all of this right, and he will fix all the injustices in this world. And so that is the great hope of our lives. That is the already, but not yet. Can I read a text to you from the book of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, to really give you some good theological and biblical background of the already, but not yet? Here it is. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And here's what it says. And it shall come to pass in the latter days. I stop there for a moment and define that term latter days for all of us in the room. Because what we realize that it means, it simply refers to a certain point in time in history. Some say that it refers to that of the end of the age. It's the time after your my history. But others will say it's a time in our history. And if you research it really and look at it, how Isaiah uses that term, what we realize is it's a time within our history. So saying all of that, it's an anticipation of hope. It's something that will happen within our time, within our history. And he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, And he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn, learn war anymore. That is the not yet peace to all of this, that Christ will return and he will fix all of this. Isaiah is prophesying thousands of years before that happens. And so, but, but he, God doesn't leave us hanging there because verse 5 is the already. O house of Jacob, come. This is the already. This is the nature and the character of God that he loves us so much that he sends his son. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's that God's desire is God's desire is to give you and I the kingdom. It goes back to the book of Luke. I said we're going to stop by there before we get to Isaiah chapter 9. Book of Luke chapter 12 verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure. And we know that when God says these things, when Christ says these things and Luke records them, it's a beautiful thing because it eliminates all this fear with my life and your life that somehow God begrudgingly gives gifts, that somehow God is constrained to give to you and I, that really beneath God's uh, exterior, uh, this veneer of him is this angry deity that wants to take out wrath upon us. That is not it. But in his sovereign freedom that he, it is his good pleasure, it says, to give you and I the kingdom. It is a statement of his pure, unrestrained love for you and I, the already, that he sees us broken. This is Advent, and he sends us his son to be with us, to walk with us, to not leave us alone, as he said at the ascension. It's his desire, it's his hope, it's his pleasure to give us this gift. And when you go to Isaiah chapter 9, these are powerful Advent words for you and I this morning, because Isaiah writes to a people that are in struggle. They're feeling the pressure of life. You see, what is happening in Isaiah chapter 9 is contextually, as we read prior to that, that we know that they're being invaded by this this Syrian army. And what is happening is this, that I think even makes it more difficult, 
is that God is using this to discipline them because of their rebellion and their idolatry against him. And so this army is invading them. And it's God's idea to use this to bring them back to him. And Isaiah is not blind to how they feel. He's not. He's not blind to the pressure, the stress. He's not not blind to the harm and the hurt within their lives. They're enslaved not only to their invaders, but they're also enslaved to the very passions of their own heart. They're bound by their own hearts. And as their captivity time is drawing close, what, what Isaiah does, he sees this deliverance as a snapshot of the redemptive work of Christ in my life and your life hundreds, or thousands, hundreds of years later in the New Testament. No, it's the redemption that God brings to man. It's Advent. It's what Christ has done for you and I by coming and simply living as a man and dying and being buried in a borrowed tomb and rising on the third day and ascending to the Father. That is exactly what he's talking about. So what we're going to do for a few moments is this. We're going to dust off a timeless truth. Yes, we're going to look beyond the shadow And we're going to discover the substance as we start Advent together. And then at the end, we will pray. And what an amazing way to start Advent together is that coming to the Lord's table. We're going to do that together before we leave this morning. But when we go to Isaiah chapter 9, we see some powerful Advent words for you and I today as a church. So go there with me, Isaiah chapter 9. We start with verse 1, and it says this. But there will be no gloom. You will, you will recognize some of this text because you've heard it so many times during the Christmas season. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephratali. Why these two places? It's a very interesting thought because when Jerusalem is invaded by an an army outside of their country, then they always come from the north. Those invading armies always come to this region of Zebulun and Nephratali. And when an army comes to invade, listen, they don't come through and stop and have lunch somewhere on their way in. What they do is they come and they leave devastation. They scorch the earth. They rape. They pillage. They do everything that could be imaginable. There's violence. There's slavery. There's There's oppression that they leave in their wake. And so this is an area that is desolate. This is an area that when this happens is simply left as ground zero to desolation in the nation. So then what he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's the region where Jesus does most of his ministry. And you say, well, is that by chance? No, because with God, there's nothing by chance. That when Jesus comes, most of his ministry takes place in the region of Zebulun and Nephitali. Why? That is so amazing. Because it's probably the darkest place that you would ever find in this region. And this is what God comes into. I love that. I love that. It's so powerful. And he goes on to say, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shine. So a couple of thoughts as we move through these seven verses together this morning. The first is this, the already, the already of Christ invading our darkness. 
that Christ comes to this place that is so desolate and so dark, ground zero of that of devastation and darkness, but yet it's also ground zero of that of the light of the world. It, it is, it is down, ground zero of the destruction of that of oppression and violence and slavery and injustice. And maybe you look at these people and you think, well, they're just having a bad day. It's kind of an off time for them. They have good days. They have bad days. No, but this place the, this region, which is really Galilee, this region is marked simply by centuries of violence. It's not that it's just an unsafe place to live, but it's a place that's devoid of stability and safety. Nobody goes on vacation at the sea of, uh, or Galilee by the sea. No one goes there. You only live there because you're so poor you can't live anywhere else. Yet, this becomes ground zero for God's divine invasion into this world. It's a place of hopelessness. It's a sign to you and I that there is no darkness in our life too dark. There is no sin too great. There is no struggle that's insurmountable for God to handle. That He comes to the darkest place in the world for you and I to understand that there is nothing impossible in our life today when we will surrender that to God. Nothing. Nothing. I love it. It's the nature and the character of our Lord. That He could have come to, you know, He could have come and spent His ministry in any place in Israel. But yet, he comes as this being a sign to you and I. A sign to you and I in the place that is most dark is where the light simply invades. I love it because this is important. We go to the book of Matthew for a moment, chapter 4 and verse 12. And it ties this together about Zebulun and Nephertali. Nephertali, Because what it says in Matthew 4 and 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephetali. Look, it ties all this together with what Isaiah is saying in the Old Testament. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephetali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He picks the most hopeless place on the planet, seemingly, to bring hope. And how many times in our lives, in our situations, have we looked at ourselves and said, I'm not sure God could even intervene here. I'm not sure God could even help this this person or or God could intervene in the darkness of my heart, that God could eliminate the pain. I'm not sure that God could forgive. I'm not sure that God could somehow create forgiveness in my life for someone who has harmed me or, or someone who has wronged me. I, I, and we limit God and God says, wait a minute, I take that off the table. I remove that excuse in your life Because what I do is I send my son, I send him into the world, and I send him in to do ministry in the darkest part of the known world, that of Zebulun and Nephertali, as a sign for you that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. I love it how God removes our excuses, doesn't he? He pulls those right out from under us. He does. 
by doing this. And I love it because it gets very specific because here's what he says. He says back in verse 2 that he's committed to the people who walked in darkness. And, and when I begin to look at that, what are, that's the daily grind. That's our environment. That's the thing that we function in day and out. It's our pressures and the commitments of our lives is what that is. And he brings darkness to those that can see a light at the end of the tunnel. He, our light, he brings light to those that can see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. He brings light to those where the, their darkness is solvable. There are times when we struggle and we know, yes, this is going to get better. That this is a season. And yet there is light at the end of my tunnel, but he brings light to those that are in that situation. But I love God because he takes it to a next step because he says that he's committed to those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. He's committed to those that don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. They don't see any hope, any future. They don't see any way that, any, that this is going to ever work out within their lives. And they feel locked in darkness. It's one thing to walk in darkness, but it's another thing to feel like you are locked in darkness. And that is exactly what God is addressing, that he sends Christ not just to our lives when we have a bad day. It's not that. But he even sends Christ light into our lives when we have no hope, when we see no light at the end of our tunnel, that he is light. There is nothing impossible for God in our lives today. Nothing. Nothing. And so trust him. What I love it is this. He's, God is, God's flexing is what he's doing. And I say that to you a lot because this is exactly what he's doing. That this life-giving child sent, sent by God, born of a woman. It's God wrapped in flesh, fully God, fully man. We're going to talk about that in just a moment as it bears that out in the book of Isaiah. That he sends this gift into the shadows of, of our life and of our world to bring light. It's the perfect gift. And it's not because he does it because he does it begrudgingly, because we already read that in the book of Matthew, but he does that because it's his good pleasure because he loves you. He loves you. He pushes back darkness. And it's not something that I can describe in a Christmas card. It's not something that I see necessarily in the twinkle of of children at a Christmas tree on, on Christmas morning. As much as I love all of those things, it's not something I think that can be depicted in those situations. Because what this is, this is an all-consuming light invading what seems to be an all-consuming darkness. That God steps into the ugliness of my life and your life. It's a death conquering illumination. This is exactly what it is. It's the invasion of light into the darkness of my life. That nothing is impossible for him to do. Nothing. We read on in the book of Isaiah, this time verse 3. It says, For you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's the already of Christ increasing our joy. How do we respond to this light within our life? When we grasp the brightness of this, when we grasp what God has done by sending His Son, there's only one response, and He said is unrestrained, hysterical, over-the-top joy within our life. It's the arrive, Advent is the arrival of joy. And He uses these metaphors, and they're powerful metaphors. He says it's like when you have the harvest, not the best harvest or the better harvest than last year, but it's, a, it's the harvest that is 
is the best known to man, is what he's simply saying, that you have that kind of joy. You have that kind of joy when you're pillaging the enemy that once pillaged you. I like that. It's exactly what he's saying, that you have that kind of joy. Common joy undersells the joy of the substance of Advent. It's an extraordinary gift to you and I, because it's his pleasure to give it to you. Verse 4 says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And I, interesting how he brings that story from the Old Testament. He brings that story here. For every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's the already of Christ intervening in our lives. He takes this story of the Midianites and it takes us back to the story of Gideon. And we know the story of Gideon, that God raises him up with this mighty army, this army of of 32,000. And God says, wait a minute, Gideon, you have too many. Because if you go and you defeat, if you defeat the enemy with this many, you're going to take credit for that. So I'm going to cut down your army. And God takes 32,000 and he cuts it down to 3,000. And then he says, turn in all of your swords and your shields and your spears. And I'm going to give you clay pots and torches. And I'm going to tell you to yell at the enemy in the middle of the night. And you're going to scare them to death. And they're going to kill each other and you're going to win. Now, if God gave you that kind of plan, what are you going to do with it, right? Yeah. I know what I would do. I would say, God, we need to have a meeting because this is not the way it works, you know? God, what do you mean? You're going to cut my army from 32,000 to 300. And then, God, what you're going to do is you're going to take all of our weapons of war away from us. And then basically what you're going to give us is a bunch of flower pots and glow sticks. And you're going to tell us to yell at the enemy is what you're going to do. Yes. But what it says to you and I, And I think what the example is for us is the example that when God intervenes, when God intervenes in our life, it far exceeds man's ability. It goes beyond possibilities. It goes beyond logic. And it moves beyond probability in this life. Because when God intervenes within our life, there is nothing, nothing impossible. Advent is God intervening, is exactly what this is. It is God intervening in my life and your life. It is, it is a snapshot of the character, the nature, and the love of God for us. It is. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. And you have to stop there for a minute. Because theologically, this is the humanity of God, is what this is. That this baby boy, he burst forth into the world the same way that all of us came into this world. Understand that. He did. Personally, I have never had another human come out of my body. I never have, right? Yes. And, and, I, I, and I'm thankful for that. I'm extremely thankful for that. Understand that. I am, yes. I've always told you this, that all it's going to take is one man to have a baby, and then there would never be any more babies in the world, right? Isn't that right? Yeah, because that man would tell every other man, you don't want to ever have this in your life. No. So I celebrate the strength of women, and, and I really do. And, and so I, I look at this. 
I, I look at this and think, this is the humanity of Christ. He is born of a virgin. He comes into this world just as you and I. But you can't, you can't take the miraculous here. You can't take the miraculous and paint it with the common because it just doesn't add up. It's the humanity of Christ. But then he goes on to say, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. It's the deity of Christ. He is fully God, fully man. He is God wrapped in flesh. This is a huge theological shift because this is the first time that we find in Scripture, the first time that we discover, discover that He is not mere man, but He is mighty God. That He is not just Emmanuel that we find in chapter 7. He's not just showing up to occupy the throne of David and to rule over all of Israel and to drive Rome out of being an occupying force. No, this is God himself coming to fix the brokenness of our life and our world. He will crush the head of the enemy. He is the, as the scripture goes on, he is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace, it says. It's the already of Christ making a better way in our life. Because this promise is, it's not a package, but it's a, it's a person. A divinely given child. God wrapped in flesh. Fully God and fully man. And there is no other way, no other way, but by Him. That's what it says in the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 11. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which he must be saved. No other way, no other light that dispels darkness but Christ. He's our hope. That is the substance behind the shadow. That's the substance behind the shadow this morning. The shadow is great. Yes, we love all of the things that we do during this Advent season to celebrate. But if we missed the substance, then we've missed what we can wrap our arms around. And that is that God sent Jesus into this world, into the darkest part of this known world, into the place where there seemed to be no hope. It was hopeless. And he brings light. And he brings hope. He says that it's like Gideon and the Midianites, that God intervenes when other things would not work, when human power, intellect, when, when ingenuity, technology does not make us better. Christ has a better way for us. Understand that. And that's the word, and that is Advent. And then he says this in verses 6 and 7, and I finish this morning with these two verses. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and, other, and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it with justice and with righteousness. From this day forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. The last thought, the already of Christ providing greater confidence in our lives. And, and these last two verses, as I was studying them this week, 
man, you can preach a series of sermons out of this. I mean, there is so much stuff here. But I get stuck on that very last statement in this. And he ends with the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And, and when I looked at that, understanding who God is, that God is omniscient and omnipotent. He is omnipresent. I, I understand all those things theologically about who God is. That there is nothing harder for God than anything else. But it seems when we look at this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It almost seems that there are things that God might be more passionate about. God might be more passionate about some things than he would be others. It kind of infers that in my own mind, in my kind of imagination. And I'm thinking, what would God be more passionate about? What would God be more passionate about than any other thing in the creative order if there's one thing? And you know what it boils down to when I read this, when I understand Advent in the heart of God, that what I realize that the thing that God is more passionate about than anything else in the creative order is me. You said, Mark, does that include us? Yeah, that includes you. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Humankind, you and I. And to me, wow, that, that's mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling. You know, last night or this, this weekend, we got to drive down to Charleston and we got to uh, be at one of Grayson's concerts at, at school and, and heard they went to their candlelight uh, service Friday night, and it was an, an amazing, amazing event, and, and we really enjoyed it and got to spend some time with Grayson Saturday, and, and so we dropped him back off at school, and on driving home Saturday, boy, it was, it was one of those absolutely beautiful days. It, we had this deluge of, of liquid sunshine. You know what it was, right? And so it rained the entire time. It rained the entire time. And, and, and so to break the monotony in the car that we put on the football game and we listened to the uh, football game on the, on the way home or one of the games yesterday we did. And for a while, I just kind of zoned out and I began to think about this thought. It began to run through my mind. That of all the things that God is passionate about, because my mind went to the ocean and man, only God could create that, right? And some of you think, man, I wish I was there today, right? Just, you know, digging my feet in the sand, looking at the water, and, and just kind of zoning out and vegging out at the ocean. Boy, I'd love that. Yes. And so they think, no, no, I'd rather have the mountains because I love the mountains, and, and I love the mountains too. And so they think, no, if you've ever stand, stood on the rim of, of the Grand Canyon, boy, God has to be really passionate about that because look at this giant hole that he creates. And it's just uh, the beauty and the colors and how the sun, when it casts down, it casts all the colors of the stones all over the canyon, all of those kinds of things. If you've been to the Rockies, oh man, it's, it's unbelievable. If you stand in Denver and you look at the Rockies, you realize, boy, God must really be amazingly passionate about that and you see the snow-capped tops of those mountains and you think of all of those kind of things you stand on the west coast and, and you look at the vast pacific ocean and you and you understand man god must really be amazingly passionate over this and when it really comes down to it and you understand god and his character and his nature he is more passionate about you and i than any of those things combined How do you know that? Because he made that clear to you and I way back in the book of Genesis, way before the garden was ever closed down, that in Genesis chapter 3, 
He sees the debacle of our lives and the mess of our lives. He sees the issues that are caused by sin in our lives. And what does he do? He answers that with a promise. He answers that with a promise. That one day he would send one wrapped in flesh. Who the enemy may bruise his heel, but yet he would crush the enemy's head on our behalf. Because God is more passionate about you and I than any other thing in the creative order. And he proves that. Not that he has to. Because he's God. But he proves that by sending his son for you and I. That is the substance of Advent. That's the thing we have to wrap our mind around. That's the thing that we truly have to get into our heart as we share the Lord's table in a moment together. That's the thing that has to be in our our mind every day when we get up and maybe we read an Advent devotional in our family or of our own on our phone or our book or something. It's a thing that we have to wrap our mind around. It's the reason why we want to give presents and receive presents. It's the reason why we want to get together and have family events. It's the reason that we sing Christmas anthems. It's the reason that we come together tonight for our Christmas night of worship, the prelude. It's the reason that we do all of those things because it's all about the substance. It brings us back to the substance of all of this and Advent. And that is that he came into the darkest parts of the world because he knew that you and I would have to have him. That's Advent. That's the already. And as we talk about that, I can just feel, I can just sense the Lord, the Holy Spirit working in this room. And and, and it seems like there's this infusion of the love of God in our life. Not that I realize that there are times when he loves me and he doesn't love me. No, but it seems like there's this infusion. God is reminding us that he is most passionate about us. He is most passionate about us. Ah. And that is not to bring guilt in your life. That is not to make you feel the shame for how you have lived. That is not to make you somewhat feel guilty for something that you have done. No, no, absolutely. In fact, the scripture says that it is with His loving kindness that He draws us to Him. It draws us to Him. Because it's His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That He's not a deity that seems to be a facade of grace and love and mercy, but yet inside that He has had this pent-up wrath for you and I. No, 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 absolutely not. But it's, a good, it's his good pleasure. That is a true example of his heart for us. So for a moment, would you bow your heads before we share at the Lord's table together? Would you bow your heads for a moment for some reflection? You see, I don't know your heart. And I don't know where you are in your journey with Christ today. But I want to tell you, He knows you. He knows you. He is God. So He knows all things, past, present, future. 
He is simultaneously existent in all areas of time. There is nothing that is unknown to Him. So He knows you. And this morning, in this moment, before we come to the Lord's table, that you would maybe have a, a moment of transparency with God. You say, Mark, you've already said He knows me, but yet, but that transparency is your faith moving toward Him. To say, Lord, you, you, know, you know where I am. God, you know my heart my life. And so, Father, in this moment of reflection, that, God, I surrender. I surrender myself. I surrender these issues. I surrender my struggles. I realize that you have invaded the darkness of my life, that there is nothing impossible. You came at the very darkest moment in the darkest and most desolate places. And so, Lord, I know there's nothing, nothing too hard for you. And so, God, I trust you this morning. I trust you. So, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment of reflection, I'm going to ask you a question. And this is between you and the Lord, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hand for a moment as just an act of faith upon your part. We say, Mark, today I'm in a dark place. Maybe it's unforgiveness in your life. Sin, maybe it's something that you are struggling with. Maybe it's a decision and you just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel of your life. You're waiting for a door to open and there seems to be no, no doors opening. And so you feel like you're somewhat in a, in a dark place today in your life. And you say, Mark, that's where I am. But I'm going to trust God for light today. Because He brings light to those that do see a light at the end of the tunnel, and He brings light to those that see no light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm going to trust Him. Thank you, Father. So if that's you this morning, just between you and God, you say, Mark, that's where I am. Put your hand up and say, that's, that's where I am. God knows my heart. God knows what's going on in my life. And so I trust Him with this moment. I trust You, Lord, with this moment. That You are extraordinary light. And what seems to be and what is darkness in my life. So I trust You, Lord, I trust you, Lord, with the sin of my life, and I confess that to you today. And I believe for your forgiveness. I accept your forgiveness already extended to me. I accept that today. In your name. Thank you, Father. In your name, 